come from? Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? It came from outer space to fill the world with terror. What earthly power can stop this terror? That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. The from outer space. Back in the lab. Good to be back. How we doing, guys? Haven't seen you guys in a while. Took a little vacay. Yeah, I was out. Uh, no episode last week. Our listeners might have noticed. I was out in our nation's capital of Washington, <laughs> D.C. for Give, some work. Giving the Redskins a little pep talk, maybe? No. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Um, well, boys, yeah. it's over. <laughs> it's over, <laughs> boys. <laughs> But yeah, how we doing? Haven't seen you stiffs out in a while. Stiffs. I'm anything, good, man. I'm anything good. new out west? Nothing on my end. Got to live with this asshole for a couple of days and just enjoying some time off from the kids for Thanksgiving break. Happy okay. Thanksgiving in advance to all the uh, legion of listeners out there. Oh yeah, this will yeah, be dropping a day before, so happy turkey and not war day. <laughs> not war. Not war. Thanksgiving is actually kind of remember like up, when Snoopy and the Red Baron <laughs> agreed for one day to not fight. See you in hell. Great Christmas song. That dude. is. That is. Well, boys, episode nine, the podcast from outer space. Here we are once again. It's your boy Rob Scott, Adam Narlock in the house. Thanks for listening, guys. And Ryan Scott back from the nation's capital. Good to be back. <laughs> Thanks for coming out. Hope you guys love Dick, because that's all we're talking about tonight. <laughs> we're talking about Philip K. Dick, to be exact. Oh, you got my hopes up, man. Maybe you guys are familiar with Blade Runner? Yeah, so uh, tonight we're discussing Philip K. Dick. Uh, we'll be talking about his uh, childhood, his life, up to the creation of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in 1968, which would go on to become Blade Runner in... 1982, which was also the year that Dick would pass away. And then in part two, we're going to get into um, the film, the sequel, and um, his death and later was later part of his life, death, and just his legacy on the sci-fi genre as a whole. Maybe a fun little surprise for you guys at the end? Oh, yeah. And so uh, if you don't know Philip K. Dick, um, his career... He wrote 44 novels, five short story collections, and over 121 short stories. He is the brain behind Man in the High Castle, which he wrote in 61, uh, now a series on Netflix. I think they're up to season two now. Uh, Blade Runner, adapted from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in uh, 1966. A Scanner Darkly in 1973, also made into a movie. Um, Total Recall, based on his short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, Minority Port, Paycheck, and The Adjustment Bureau, just to name a few. Uh, what are you guys, some of your favorites of uh, Philip K. Dick stories or movies that you've seen? Have you seen most of those? Uh, Scanner Darkly and Blade Runner, obviously, yeah. Uh, Blade Runner, I've only seen the original. I have not checked out the new one yet. Dude, the new one's fucking badass. <coughs> and, I don't care uh, what anyone says. Definitely going to check that out. Got to check out uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, finally. It's been a few years, but I've wanted to read it and finally got to. Thank you for that, Ryan. Yeah, pretty short read, too. It's a good one, though. 
And also, it's like uh, Blade Runner is very loosely adapted from that. Right, right. Like, it doesn't really tightly follow the story, but still good. Yeah, I, I really like uh, Scanner Darkly. And um, Total Recall with Arnold was uh, pretty good. I remember that one. They also remade that in, like, 2012, didn't they? No, was that with Tom Cruise? No. No, that was Minority Report. What did they remake Ooh, that's a good one, too. Total Recall with, uh, I think it was Colin Farrell. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Do you guys fuck with Man in the High Castle? I've only watched a couple episodes. Yeah, I, I liked uh, the first season. I haven't got caught up on the second one yet, though. The premise is, you know, if you read about World War II, you always wonder what if, man. There you go. Yeah, it's like a lot of his uh, themes are just like what is our own perception of reality, what's real, what's not, which, uh, you know, we'll discuss what made him that way. So, you know, yeah, interesting also about uh, Phil is that uh, he lived in basically borderline poverty for a majority of his life. Um, You know, like a lot of famous writers back in the day, um, it wasn't until after their death that a lot of their works gained notoriety. And um, especially his work. Um, and he died shortly after the original Blade Runner was released. So he never really saw any royalties from that. And uh, I was reading that like now his estate is worth an estimated $5 million. Uh, And this is even before the calculation of the, the newest Blade Runner. So let's take a trip back to Chicago in 1928 when Philip K. Dick was born. Uh, he was born six weeks premature with his twin sister Jane to a one Dorothy Kindred Dick and Edgar Dick. Uh, and a mere 41 days after their birth on January 26, 1929, Jane would die and be buried in Fort Morgan, Colorado, which was uh, their, the father's hometown. And uh, the death of his twin sister is is the first of many uh, tragedies that Phil would face in his life. And uh, this one specifically is a very important event to him. And uh, it would go on to influence a lot of themes. Uh, He has a lot of like phantom twin themes in his writings. And yeah, not long after Jane's death, uh, the family moved out to uh, California And uh, also, this played a big role in Phil's writings. This is where he uh, spent a majority of his life. And um, one of Phil's earliest memories is of his father, Edgar, who served as a sergeant in World War I. And uh, when Phil was three, Edgar took out his gas mask and put it on to amuse little Phil. When uh, Phil cried out in terror and was convinced that a giant insect had eaten and replaced his father and for weeks would scan his father's eyes for any sign of the hideous bug creature. Now, do you guys, did you guys' fathers do anything like that growing up? Any funny pranks? (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you share what's on your mind, Rob? I'm not telling that story, dude. Okay, one funny prank I do remember my dad telling me was like um, him and his buddy Chuck would uh, they would by the way yeah they would uh, like um, put on like construction hats and like go down to where they were doing construction and act like they were like the uh, I guess in the head of the the guys and like get free donuts and stuff. Like just go in like they were in charge of like a tie and a construction hat on and eat free donuts. 
or he said they where's the donuts yeah or he said they always used to like wait outside of this train station and just blow this giant train whistle and they would watch like the whole platform get their bags and like get ready to walk up like the train was coming but there was no train (laughs) (laughs) nothing that your dad pulled that you remember i feel like he's a pretty funny guy no that's the thing like he two brothers so i mean we obviously know the kind of shenanigans brothers get into i feel like he didn't tell me a lot of stories because he doesn't want me to know you know just stand the fuck up and put some shoes on (laughs) yeah no i guarantee he's got some funny ass stories he'll probably like write them down and i'll have to read them after he dies or something man posthumously just like old dick here yeah that's secretive huh yep 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 so all right get back into uh phil's life um when uh he first learned to read he enjoyed winnie the pooh Mm. and not long after quo Vedas? Is that how you would say that? Never heard of it. I mean, have you ever even read that? No. So it's Polish. Hey. There you go. Um, yeah, it's, it's like a drama romance novel about a, a Roman soldier who falls in love with this lady. It's like Rise of Christianity. This motherfucker went from winning. Yeah. The- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Check out that jump. And this was while he was, uh, I was reading, this was while he was at like a pilgrim school. Oh so he's reading this like God. rise of Christianity. Like what? Like, can you imagine a uh, little Phil just reading that at <laughs> such an early, this was before he was five. Fuck that. I think I was reading like C spot run and maybe getting <laughs> into goosebumps. This guy's jumping from kindergarten to college. Yeah. And when, uh, when he was five, his parents divorced and, uh, Phil went to live with Dorothy in Washington, D.C. for a brief period. And this is where uh, he experimented uh, with some of his earliest writings, which were a series of poems back when he was uh, living in D.C. One about a kitty eating a bird. Mm. Another about an ant dragging the carcass of a bumblebee into the woods and leaving it. And uh, finally, the third one about a tearful family burying its blind dog. Good. At five years old. (laughs) That's what uh, Quo Vedas Vedas will do to you, man. You gotta be shit. Maybe he, uh, you know, went through some of those tragedies. Maybe. Um, The dog one's kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I wonder what kid, how the poem reads. That'd be interesting uh, to get your hands on. As a kid, I mean, you could see a cat eating a bird, a ant dragon, like a dead bumble. I could see that. I guess that makes sense. Well, that's but still kind of dark. Yeah, and at five years <laughs> old, dark. I'm not writing about it. Like, maybe color a picture if I could stay in the lines long enough. <laughs> and uh, so in 1938, um, him and his mom finally settled in Berkeley, California. Bay Area. Oh, yeah. Uh, shout out Base God, also from Berkeley. Town business. So uh, Phil was one of those kids who was always out of school, had severe asthma, episodes of, how would you say that? Tachycardia. What is that? Um, it has to do with the heart. I honestly don't remember. Okay. And uh, he hated sports and any other, quote unquote, mindless activities that consumed most red-blooded American males. So he would not be getting a beer with us. No. <laughs> he would be listening to classical music and reading Quo Vetus. Doing a little meth. Writing a nice glass of red wine. So, uh, nice by th- Chianti. Yeah. 
By the age of 12, Phil was already on to what would be uh, his lifelong passions, including music. However, not like normal 12-year-old kids, Phil was one of those into classical like Glenn Gold, Mahler, and Chopin. Mm. So this kid was playing the piano. Uh, I mean, I don't know if he actually played the piano. He just listened to a lot of classical records. Uh, He was like known for his, like, he was one of those guys that, hears it and would be like oh that's some fifth symphony movement b yes <laughs> you know and uh he he enjoyed reading sci-fi magazines like astounding amazing and unknown and along with the works of hp lovecraft and edgar Allan poe and uh another one of his hobbies by the age of 12 was typing now, unlike was he using more than one finger? Yes, yes. Unlike R.L. Stein, Phil was an extremely fast typer, as it took him only twelve days to finish his first novel, *Return to Lilliput*, which was a sequel to *Gulliver's Travels*. Ah, uh, yes. And the manuscript for this has since been lost. That would probably be very interesting to read mm. him as a twelve-year-old writing that. Uh, some of his first public published works were um, macabre tales inspired by the likes of Poe appearing in the young author's column of the Berkeley Gazette. And at age 13, uh, just like many other famous writers we discuss, Phil uh, experimented with uh, starting up his own magazine called The Truth. And uh, in the editorial statement of its first and only issue, it read... This paper is sworn to print only that which is beyond doubt, the truth. This, uh, definitely you can see where this inspired some of his work. Around uh, age 14, um, while although Phil was still very patriotic, he found himself fascinated with Nazi propaganda and the way that it was executed, although... He found himself disgusted with its ultimate goal. Because, you know, this was right around, what, uh, probably 1942, 43. So, you know, World War II was at its height. And, um, I mean, that stuff is fascinating to read about. What do you guys think? Nazi propaganda? Interesting at all? No? <laughs> I don't know. That I mean, at the time, it was probably kind of scary, dude. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Because people thought they were going to come over here and, like, take shit over. But it's interesting to see that he had a fascination with it, and it definitely <laughs> influences his and writing later in life. That he recognized it was propaganda. Absolutely. You know, because a lot of people, I feel like, didn't really recognize it until it was too late, if that makes sense. So also around this time, um, this was when uh, Phil, you know, he had bad grades, uh, severe introversion, uh, developed an interest in girls, and mm. uh, had plenty of anxiety attacks and uh dorothy eventually put him in therapy sessions that would um continue basically uninterrupted until his death and um interesting like psychology was relatively new at this time uh especially for middle class america and Mm -hmm. phil would routinely run circles around some of his first psychiatrists uh because he quickly became aware of like how uh and what to say to manipulate them, uh, what answers to put on their tests, um, certain life events to like play up when he was in their offices. This reminds me of the 
this is I feel like where he subconsciously got those tests from uh, Blade Runner oh, that they yes, give the yes. androids, you know, because he knew like, oh, I have to answer this here and this here. And like, like you ever take those like personality tests like the Myers-Briggs? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you can see like, oh, if I put this answer, it's going to be I'm going to probably get this outcome. You can cheat the system. You want to yeah. know about my mother? Yeah. Oh, you want to hear about... He said he always <laughs> talked about his dead sister yeah. and, like, said how that was, like, such a tragic event in his life. Um, Wasn't he a baby? Yeah, exactly. Still, though, man, he, I feel I mean, like- yeah, that's still got to affect him somehow, you know? And uh, so even though he, he, he kind of knew the ruse of these psychiatrists, I guess, if you want to call it. Uh, he was still anything from normal. He suffered from fear of public transportation, um, bouts of dizziness, panic attacks, fear of homosexuality, and couldn't even eat in public. You know, that's funny because a lot of homosexuals love dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, da dun So uh, by 16, he had stopped going to school completely. Uh, he preferred to study in the comfort of his own home and listen to his records. Uh, however, he did hold a job at University Radio, a store that sold records, radios, record players, and uh, some of the first TV sets. Mm. Now, um, Phil got his own place around this time, um, a few years later, probably around 18, 19, um, with a group of Bohemian Berkeley students. And he, uh, he traded his sci-fi magazines for the likes of Joyce, Kafka, and Camus as only great literature um, had a place in their household. And this is also where Phil began taking his writing more seriously, uh, writing a number of short stories and two novels, although he had no luck publishing them, and also lost his virginity and his fear of being a homosexual during this period. Are you suggesting he had sex with a man or? No, he lost the fear of being a homosexual. Because he lost his virginity to a man. To a woman. Okay, I'm just clear. It's Berkeley. It's a weird time. Strange area. You're hey, right. Hey, Beat hey. generation hey, was man. big. You know, you had Ginsburg sucking off dudes left and right. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Phil met Jeanette at the record store. And Ooh. he proposed one week later. Savage, dude. Is this, is this the girl that he lost the virginity to? Yes. Okay, I, I would have done the same thing, yeah. Yeah, proposed one week later. You're not proposing, are you? <laughs> Think about Could it, Phil. Could come you know? two weeks, pal. <laughs> I mean, he really should have slept on this one. Uh, so, yeah, this started him down a long road of many compulsive and eventually failed marriages. Five of them, right? Yeah, like, let's just break them down. So we've got Jeanette Marlin, uh, May to November of 1948. Six months? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not even a full year. It takes longer to get divorced in the state of California. <laughs> then we got uh, Cleo Apostolides. Is that how you say that? That's Greek, that right? Okay, so uh, that was June 14th, 1950 to 1959. Did a little better that time. Good for him. Yeah. Um, then we got Anne Williams Rubenstein, oh. April 1st, 1959. Dude, right after. Yeah. No yeah, lag between had, the vag. Yeah, he actually was having an affair with her. <laughs> there you go. And uh, What a guy. That lasted till October of 65. Dude, wasn't this a time when like divorce was like heavily looked down upon too? 
Hey, guess not in Berkeley, California, <laughs> man. Do whatever you want yeah. out there. Be a dick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's too if you're playing the dick <laughs> drinking game. Okay. So now... It's going to be a lot of dicks here. That brings us to uh, Nancy this table. Hackett uh, from July 6th, 1966 to 1972. Ooh. And then... Finally, Leslie Tessa Busby from April 18th, 1973 to 1977. And uh, yeah, so Jeanette, the girl he proposed a week after meeting, um, wasn't long after they got their own studio apartment that she started finding Phil's stories boring and threatened to smash his records. So, you know, (laughs) Phil had to jump ship on that one. Dodged a bullet there, buddy. Yeah, I mean, these hoes be wiling out here. <laughs> and uh, his records, not appreciating his work, that's fucked up, dude. Yeah. So then he would meet his second wife, Cleo, in the very same record store, no less. And this is also the time where Phil would publish Rouge in a 1951 issue of Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. Hey, I met my last wife here. What's up? My name's Dick. <laughs> And uh, when he published his first story in the magazine, he was uh, 23. So by 24, he quit his job and began writing full-time, selling uh, four short stories in 52, 30 in 53, 28 in 54, and published his first collection of stories and novel, Solar Lottery, in 1955. You know, I'm looking over my notes here. He had... A novel in Galaxy Science Fiction, a novel in Science Fiction Quarterly, and as well as Satellite Science Fiction. I kind of want to get my hands on a couple of these. They look pretty badass. Yeah, a lot of his... um, I used to subscribe to that Audible, like the um, audiobooks, and Mm. you get like a free one every uh, every week or every month. Um, And guys, this is not even an ad. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I, I we're not looking for a sponsorship. Yeah, I used my uh, free one on like all these collection of uh, science fiction. It had a lot of his short stories in there. They were pretty good. Got the cover of Science Fiction Quarterly in 1953 with the world she wanted. This period of time, like uh, 52 to 55, and when he was married to Cleo, this was also the time where he would frequent the Lucky Pet Dog Store to buy horse meat. That he claimed was for the dog. However, he did not have a dog. For my dogs. <laughs> Him and Cleo would uh, live off horse meat. and uh, Which I don't think is that weird. Have you guys eaten horse? Never have. Not knowingly, I'm sure. Would you try it? I don't know, man. What's the we- What's the like most exotic meat you've eaten? <laughs> probably kangaroo with you that one time, bud. Yep. I mean, that's probably what it would be for me, kangaroo. What about you? I don't know, man. I'm, I'm sure I ate some weird stuff in Poland. I still have no idea. Human meat. Ugh, dick. <laughs> Raccoon. <laughs> that's number three. <laughs> so um, around this time, uh, the mid-50s, this was when the sci-fi genre really started to take uh, shape that um, Phil felt that he fit into. Uh, this was when narratives started to come out that were dark suspenseful and would uh flip the normal world into a more nightmarish reverse order 
uh, leaving the reader feeling disoriented. Uh, you know, similar to like popular TV shows, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, uh, movies like Invasions of the Body Snatchers were becoming big. And um, as we discussed earlier, Phil, he can't stay tied down, so eventually he married Anne Rubinstein. Uh, this was the, a neighbor who he was already having an affair with, uh, leaving Cleo to simply withdraw herself from their life, sadly. And on uh, February 26th of 1960, um, Phil's first daughter, Laura, was born. And by this time, Phil was suffering from pyloric spasms due to his drug cocktail of tranquilizers for anxiety and amphetamines to help keeping him work longer. And uh, he would sometimes write for 10 to 12 hour stints. Um, did, you, did you come across this at all in your research? I read somewhere. Someone suggested that there was a period of time for three years where he did not sleep because he suffered from cocaine psychosis. I mean, yeah, it does not surprise me. Like, listen to his uh, drug cocktail. All right. So he was taking Surpassil for heart murmur, Simoxidrine for agorphia. <laughs> Agoraphobia. Oh, no, you're right. The fuck is that? Benzedrine to stimulate his brain and a few others to counteract all the side effects. Oh and this is on top of tranquilizers and amphetamines. Oh. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> and uh, Ooh, shout out to Charlie Murphy. In, in the book I was reading, it's saying one day he, uh, out of curiosity, he read the label of a bottle of pills, he was, which he was taking the max dosage of at the time, and side effects read hallucinations, delirium, serious vascular problems, and death. <laughs> However, he he kept taking them because he said he depended on this uh, on this rhythm of like this drug cocktail uh, to get his work done. <clears throat> Crazy man, just like uh, King, you know, with his substance abuse. Dude, I think honestly, all great writers are pretty fucked up. Yeah, like eighty to ninety percent of the time. Now, just a uh, disclaimer to our loyal legion of listeners out there: we're not encouraging you. To go out and do all these drugs so you can become a successful writer, we're just providing you with information. Yeah, because, I mean, look at R.L. Stein. Look at uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Boom. Okay, yeah. But <laughs> then, like Stephen King, he was able to kick it, and he still <laughs> writes. Uh, R.L. Stein, that guy's probably never smoked a joint. Yeah, right, dude. See how happy that guy is? Yeah. That's just for his YouTube videos. You don't see behind the scenes. <laughs> so... Um, the Man in the High Castle was published in 1962, and this won Phil the Hugo Award the following year, uh, which if you don't know Hugo Award, that's basically the Oscars of sci-fi writing. And uh, although this is the first book of his to win such a high honor, uh, a lot of his work that followed was uh, pretty unnoticed. So, you know, like we were saying at the beginning, uh, throughout his career when he was alive, uh, his work wasn't really didn't really gain the high regard that um, he wanted it to, aside from um, Man in the High Castle winning the Hugo Award. And I, I think this is, uh, we can chalk this up a little bit to, um, you know, just like the original Blade Runner film wasn't super successful, it was just, you know, ahead of its time, mm. I think, right? Everybody else just had to catch up. Yeah, I mean, it's, def it's definitely like I, I was reading about um, Blade Runner, the original, and it was saying a lot of critics said it didn't do well at the box office, but it will probably be one of those movies that stands the test of time and holds up, you know? 
This is true. Which the only reason true. it didn't do well at the box office is because it came out the same weekend as E.T. Fun fact. Oh, yeah. And most critics are cynical <laughs> assholes. So um, another idea that is evident in a lot of Phil's writings is that reality is not reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 1954, The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley was published. This is where uh, Jim Morrison and The Doors got their name from. And um, this took its name from a William Blake line that reads, if the doors of perception were, were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. And uh, Huxley and other, other similar philosophers subscribe to the idea that the brain is a mechanism for filtering a reality that is too rich for our meager receptors we as humans are equipped with. And drugs could temporarily disable this mechanism. And uh, you know, by the mid-1960s, these ideas were huge in California. Still are. Yeah, especially Berkeley. You know, you got Timothy Leary going around, giving people acid all around the country. The CIA's jacking each other, dosing each other, setting up experiments for MKUltra. Department of Energy's getting involved. Yeah, you got... Grateful Dead in full swing. You can literally track the acid trail across the U.S. (laughs) by following their tour. I'm not making that up. And uh, Phil agreed uh, with a lot of a lot of uh, this philosophy, although he had never even taken LSD or mescaline or even smoked a joint. Probably would have been a lot cooler (laughs) if he did. All right. All right. And uh, but you know he was taking the pill cocktail that we just read off. You think he ever hung out with Hunter S. Thompson? That uh, guy was taking a lot of pills too. I don't know. Hang I mean, out, I'm swap sh- pills, write a couple stories. I'm sure they maybe crossed paths, but I think they were just different. Yeah, obviously, too. very different, very different genres. Guys. But yeah, uh, Hunter's drug cocktail was insane. If you've ever read that, yeah. that's our just Google it for the week. <laughs> Go ahead and just Google <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson's uh, like daily routine. Daily routine of drugs. Insane. So, yeah. So um, now uh, we get to like sixty-three. This is where Phil would start having these visions, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more. We'll probably talk a lot more about the visions on the next episode, but uh, we'll just give you a little, a little uh, taste of that on this one. So. Um, On one November afternoon in 1963, Phil was making his way through the horse pastures where he lived, which uh, relentless rains had turned into vast, muddy lakes. He's going out to get some dinner? I guess. Uh, Overhead, a bird screamed, and he looked up. There in the sky above him, a gigantic face peered down. Robotic and horrible, it filled a quarter of the sky, and it was watching him. Terror-stricken, Phil closed his eyes, but the vision persisted. It was not the face he saw, that was no longer there, but the look the face had given him, one of sheer malice as if the evils of the world were concentrated in it, in the hateful gaze that poured from the empty, horizontal slots of the face's eyes. Phil instantly understood that this was what he had been afraid of seeing his entire life life. Slowly, he opened his eyes and found himself staring at his boots, solidly stuck in the gluey mud. They were a comforting sight, 
a welcome dose of reality. He looked up again. The face was back. It grinned at him. A sneer of malevolence and death. Phil took off running, heading straight for the house. He didn't dare look up. Uh, For several days, the face in the sky played hide-and-seek with Phil, disappearing when he worked up the courage to look up to see if it was there, insinuating itself into his field of vision the moment he stopped expecting to see it. Um, Phil drove out to San Rafael to see his psychiatrist, and the doctor eyed him suspiciously and asked if perhaps he had taken that hallucinogenic drug that everyone was talking about. Phil shrugged. He, he said, yeah, he had heard about it. Uh, he told the doctor, and he had read what Hugsley had to say about mescaline, uh, which was more or less what Leary had been saying about LSD. Uh, but he himself had never taken it, as you can't, couldn't get a hold of it in Point Reyes, where he was living at the time. And uh, he told the doctor, I thought this was interesting, uh, he told the doctor what John Collier, the British writer of fantastic fiction had said the universe was a pint of beer and the galaxies nothing but rising bubbles a few people living in one of the bubbles happened to see the guy pouring the beer and for them nothing will ever be the same nothing was the same yeah so that was uh one of his visions from 63 and uh not too long after this, his wife, Anne, would eventually be taken into a psychiatric hospital where she would stay. And uh, Phil, being Phil, met Nancy Hackett, a hard-drinking policewoman, truck-driving member of Mensa. Phil would eventually marry her in July of 66, where on the honeymoon, Phil would go on to write, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? I guess by the third marriage, you're like, ah, fuck it, I'm just going to write a book instead of (laughs) consummating the marriage. I mean, yeah, I guess. He said, fuck it, I'm writing this book on our honeymoon. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, yeah, what do we think about that face story? Him seeing the evil faces and stuff? Says he, like, uh, after he stopped off at a psychiatrist, he stopped off at a church. And this, uh, I think it was an Episcopal church. And the uh, he went to confession and told him about this. And, like, this was the only guy that kind of took him seriously and says that uh, he thought he saw the devil. Mm. Now, I Get think... Get back I, the devil. I think I uh, had a, a, an experience similar to this. Oh, yeah? Yeah, when I was a little kid, I don't remember if it was a dream or real, but I remember me and Robert playing out on that set of wooden monkey bars we had, and we went, like, running into the door because, like, a storm cloud was coming, and I looked up, and it was like a giant skull, like skeleton cloud, like almost like the black rhino cloud from James and the Giant Ooh, Peach. Yep, yep. Yeah. But, you know, for the life of me, I remember being horrified, and I couldn't get into the house. It was locked. Uh, I think Rob locked me out or something. But Yeah, right, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't remember or not, you know? Am I just having one? Did I see the devil? Maybe. Maybe. I remember another time on those monkey bars, you handcuffed me to them and kicked my feet out from under me. (laughs) And that was real. Now that was, you know, we were getting into the spirit of cops and robbers, you know? I was trying to find out out where the enemy base was. You were the original bad cop. Yeah. 
So, Real douchebag. Yes. Um, by 1966, uh, the time when when uh, Phil wrote "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep," um, there was already a debate going on about uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, if you want more info on that, check out our previous episode on AI. Uh, but basically, it comes down to at this time it was basically argument between materialists and spiritualists where the materialists believe that all parts of the human brain can be broken down, recreated, just like we discussed in the episode. This is possible. It's just taking a lot longer than expected. And spiritualists believe there is a part of humans that we cannot recreate something that we can't quite quantify a ghost in the machine or a soul, so to speak. Mm. What do you What do you guys think about this? I guess I'm more of a spiritualist. I guess. Uh, okay. You so know, you, even if there was a Ryan Ryan Scott android, he wouldn't have the same spunk that you have. Like it, <laughs> he wouldn't spunk? have the yeah the same punch and delivery that you have. I I feel like. You've seen my spunk? <laughs> a couple hey, of sand slugs, dude. You used to pray a lot, bud. Had so, a big shrine in the closet. What about you, Rob? Are you materialist or spiritualist? Now, I don't want to bring this back to porn, but I was actually looking up some artificial intelligence stuff this morning in preparation. What, VR porn? <laughs> <laughs> no, dude. So I was trying to see like how far... like. Like what information is out there that shows how far like artificial intelligence has actually come to this date that's like released to the public. This guy who's in charge of I forget the name of the like company that he owns, but he manufactures these sex robots. This is over in Japan, I think. Uh I don't the guy was a white guy, so I thought it was here, but I, I anyways. Anyways, this guy is quoting that he is about to release these ones that have actual emotions so i don't know if that's real or not but that's kind of creepy that there's soon to be a lifelike human robot that can actually have emotions sounds like a nightmare yeah it's like the and whole there's point all these of having a sex robot them. is that it doesn't no he that. said he always he said he already has ones out there that are like set up to like greet you when you get home and just ask you to like have sex with them. Like that's all they do. But then he said he's been getting a lot of these reviews back that he, that they want them to have real emotions and you can set like when you get it, you set it to like what you want. And I was like, dude, that's creepy as fuck. Yeah. I don't think that needs to be out there. (sighs) Oh, you know, I mean maybe like robots doing regular ass jobs, but like that's real creepy. Put an Xbox in that thing and people will never leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, man. It's an Xbox controller on it? Yeah. That's fucking weird, dude. So, um, you know, along God with the... Damn it. Let's go right back to that because I just want to say I'm going to agree with Adam. I don't think you can... Like, you can be, you can get real close, like some Blade Runner type shit, Nexus 6. Mm. But you're never going to fully recreate a human unless you like clone one so you think there is some innate quality that just cannot be recreated or explained yes there it is okay that innerness (laughs) you got that robness so you know along with the ai debate uh, another one of his influences for do androids dream of electric sheep was uh english english (laughs) mathematician (laughs) 
Alan Turing uh, would play a big part in Phil's inspiration for the novel, uh, particularly an article that he had written on AI in 1950 and the Turing test, which tests the machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior equivalent to or indistinguishable from that of a human. Now, side note, uh, aside from this article, Phil found this guy's life fascinating. And I'll give, I'll give us a brief breakdown of that now. Um, it's not only that he's basically one of the founding fathers of modern computer science, but uh, he's credited with a big role in the Allies winning World War II. And his machine for the British Secret Service broke the Luftwaffe secret codes, uh, basically by finding that every code ended in Hail Hitler and working off that as like a key. Um, but despite all of this, Turing, as a gay man, was eventually charged with homosexual acts in 1952 by the British government because that was a criminal offense in the UK at the time. And he was given the choice of chemical castration or prison time. And Turing chose chemical castration. And at the age, in 1954, at the age of 42, he was found dead from cyanide poisoning as ruled a suicide. But when they found his body, uh, they also found a half-eaten apple at his bedside. And although the apple was never tested for cyanide, it is speculated that this was the means by which the fatal dose was consumed. That's kind of fucked up, dude. Yeah. This is basically one of the biggest war heroes of all time. And they just chopped his nuts off. No, they did not chop them, them off. off it, was, it was chemical. Okay, like, yeah, oh. obviously, I don't mean literally chopped them off, but I'm saying. They was chopping the meds off. It's fucked up, That's man. like 60 years ago. Oh, you're gay? We'll take those and nuts And you basically from you. are like one of the biggest reasons <laughs> yeah. why we won World War II. Thanks for uh, breaking the code there. Guy, hey, thanks but, for uh, that, but we're going to just give you yourself. doses of estrogen until your balls don't work and you got big old tits like in Fight Club. That's what they did? Yeah, chemical castration. God damn. So, Mm. you know, just a little uh, food for thought for you. But back to uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The novel was set in 92 in a world where androids are so advanced and there are many different types, uh, almost as many as there are model cars in the U.S., And the novel deals with a lot of questions and themes, such as what it means to be human, uh, what is real, uh, opposite of empathy, you know, that like the tests in the movie. Got any more information for us, Adam, about the books? Uh, Yeah, not going to try not to give too many spoilers away. If you haven't read it, I strongly suggest it. It's one that I've put off for almost a decade, but I'm glad I finally got around to it. As Ryan mentioned, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is set in a post-apocalyptic future brought on by World War Terminus. Nuclear fallout from the war forced many humans to relocate to colonies on other planets. Mars is specifically mentioned in the book. People that choose to go to other planets are compensated by the government with human-like android servants. Um, And again, you know, the radioactivity from the war killed out many species on earth especially animals and a big theme throughout the novel is you know owning an animal is kind of an extremely valuable commodity and it's a status symbol and it's like uh people have like fake 
animals. Right, right, that right. That are like indistinguishable to like show that they have status. Absolutely. It's like but a knockoff other Gucci people bag. Don't, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, That's uh, well put. <laughs> the novel's main protagonist, Rick Deckard, is a bounty hunter who must quote unquote retire six rogue androids who have escaped from Mars and are coming back to Earth. Um, his motivation for taking the job is, like we talked about, to earn enough money to be able to buy a real animal instead of the electronic sheep he and his wife currently own. And the thought process, again, behind owning an animal is that if you can, if you own an animal, you show empathy, like you have to be able to take care of and love an animal, which is an emotion that androids cannot replicate. And uh, intertwined with Deckard's journey in the story is that of John Isidore. He is a mentally disabled man, only fit for menial work back on Earth. He's excited when he meets a woman named Pris, but, you know, what guy isn't excited when he meets a woman? Who moves into his apartment building and the two develop a relationship. And with encouragement from two of Pris's quote-unquote friends, no spoilers, who come to visit, Pris decides to move in with John. And again, without giving too much away, Rick has a religious experience with mercerism. Check that out. He has sex with an android, which interest Rob apparently and he ultimately does end up with a pet not only Rob but a lot of Japanese uh, I'm not interested in it. I just came across it you motherfuckers while looking at porn I was not looking at he was porn researching for the <laughs> I podcast you said you were no I was looking I said not to bring it back to porn oh uh, I mean that's pretty much the same shit it's not real yeah so anyways I just wanted to ask oh you my guys God, you <laughs> fucking assholes if you guys if we were living in this post-apocalyptic world and you could have any pet, what would it be? You want me to start it off, get the ball rolling? I already have a pet. Snake. A real snake or a fake snake? Trouser snake? <laughs> Doesn't count. <laughs> I don't know, man. Any pet? Any pet. Probably just go with the pup, dude. I'd have a duck-billed platypus. as <laughs> a fucking pet. Yeah. I feel like you put a lot of thought into this before. That'd be cool. You're just going to have a little fucking pond out back? Sure. Fuck it. But it would be a robot. A robot. <laughs> what about you? I, I would go with a fox. And a hound? <laughs> just Well, I guess it could be best friends with Rob's pop. Because <laughs> we're going to be living together in this post-apocalyptic world. You better come find me, you asshole. <sighs> Dude, I think that's some real shit that could happen. They're already trying to fucking... Do you see the fucking net neutrality shit? Yeah. yeah. You guys been reading on that? They're trying to start charging for what speed like okay obviously you already get a certain charge for your internet but they're trying to like break it down even further than that so like if you don't pay a certain amount you can't see certain things on the internet anymore i did see something about that sounds like china north korea too you know talking about a third world war knocking on north korea's door nuclear fallout hey hey living off world um what i thought was interesting you guys live on mars no. You wouldn't? If it was habitable, you would just be like, nah, I'm good here. Yeah. You don't think that'd be cool? They're already sending people to Mars. Yeah, but in the that would suck. How do you know you never been? That's like saying Africa A sucks. giant desert planet? <laughs> Until <laughs> exactly. you inhabit it. I haven't even been to enough of this own world. Why would I want to go to another one? That'd be badass, dude. You could always- <laughs> It would be badass to live in an inhabitable planet. I said, if it was habitable you could be the first person to find an alien life form as in you would live in a terrarium what the fuck is a terrarium 
<laughs> and you would just live in a glass bubble. I'm a kid. That was a movie quote, you fucker. It's an artificial habit. So was mine. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if given the chance, I would. I think it would be cool. He would be the first motherfucker to find an alien life form <laughs> and fuck it. There he goes. Homeboy fucked the Martian once. <laughs> While researching the book, I thought it was interesting that uh, PKD came up with his idea for the novel when researching The Man in the High Castle, again, dealing with Nazis in the 1940s. Um, he was fascinated with that. Very much so. Uh, Philip had been granted access to archive, archive World War II Gestapo documents and had come across diaries written by SS men stationed in Poland, which he almost found unreadable because of the casual cruelty and lack of human empathy they portrayed in their diaries. And uh, I bet that was fucked up. Oh, I can't, I can't even imagine. Like, I've been to the concentration camps, and, like, that's harrowing enough. I couldn't imagine reading a firsthand account. But uh, there was one sentence in particular that troubled him. <clears throat> one of the officers wrote, We are kept awake at night by the cries of starving children. And Dick was so horrified by this sentence that he reasoned there was obviously something wrong with the man who wrote it. And this led him to hypothesize that Nazism in general was a defective group mind, a mind so emotionally flawed that the word human could not be applied to them. Their lack of empathy was so pronounced that Dick reasonably reasoned that they could, be, could not be referred to as human beings, even though their outward appearance seemed to indicate that they were humans. So in a sense, they're the androids. They're the androids, and it's like that opposite of empathy. Mm. Mm. I was reading like that was a big, uh, a big question for him in that in this novel was like, what's the opposite of empathy? Is it like cruelty? Um, you know. Now, is that going to bring us into our testing phase, Rob? We've got a very special segment for you guys. Rob, true or false? You have seen the original. Oh, yeah. Is this, uh, are you, is this the question? No, no, no. This is okay, a precursor okay. to okay. the test. True or false, you have seen the original Blade Runner film? True. How many questions did it take? And this isn't part of the test. I'm genuinely asking you. <laughs> I'm honestly asking. <laughs> How many questions did it take in the film for them to figure out if someone was an android or not? Three. 20 to 30. Whether you were close. <clears throat> Maybe I fucking watched the wrong version, dog. No, it's, it, he he asks them three, but he tells them, Tyrell asks him, how many questions does it take? And he says 20 to 30 cross-referenced. Anyways. You're absolutely right. I am. I'll just go fuck. But doesn't he say that like a real good one can figure out in, in like... Well, here's the thing. And I found this today while doing research. That number of questions has dropped drastically thanks to advancements in the field. It's down to about 10 questions. Here's my thing. I took this test earlier. I sent a copy to Ryan earlier, and neither of us are androids, but I firmly believe that you're an android. <laughs> Would you be willing to take this test to prove that you are not? Nope. Your lack of empathy is astounding. Uh, see, I'm trying to start to think that he really is an android. Don't think about these. Just first thing that comes to your mind. Reaction right? time is like important. This is all about test. reaction time. Yeah, this is gonna be this is gonna be good content. Are you measuring my pupils dilating? Or also, do, you will fuckers? you just answer the question? Yeah, we'll ask the that. questions here. You answer them. <laughs> all right. Oh, okay. Are you ready? You ready? Here we go. Tell us about a time that you leveraged your knowledge of the current geopolitical situation and cross cultural understanding <laughs> to make an informed business decision. Ooh, <laughs> nothing on that one. Nothing. Too okay, much time. We'll go on to number two. Go ahead. 
Where do you spend most of your online time? Doing research for this fucking podcast. Good answer. Uh, all right. <coughs> if you were a fruit, what fruit would you be and why? Hmm. That's a good question. Oh, I'd go with a strawberry. Why? Just first thing that came to my mind. Fair enough. How would you? Did just, you guys make this up? No. You ready? I think you did. This is a real test. This dude. is a real test. Why are you crying if you already fucking answered it yourself? How would you describe the color yellow to a blind person? Are you fucking kidding me? Is that your answer? That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, buddy. Oh man. No empathy whatsoever. <clears throat> Here you go. If you ate yourself, would you become twice as big or disappear completely? I'm done answering questions. No, no, we're almost yeah. done. We're, we're almost done. We're, done we're almost done. We're done now. Here, what song best describes your worth work ethic? Fuck you by Red Asphalt. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Didn't see that one, did you, you fuckers? How many windows would you estimate are in New York City? Just an estimate. Who cares? No empathy. Mm-mm-mm. Rate us as interviewers on a scale of one to ten. Minus 10. Mm. For both of us? Yeah, you guys are dickheads. All right. <clears throat> Have you ever stolen a pen from work? No. Never. Repeat after me. Beep, boop, beep, boop. <laughs> That's going to be a no for me, dog. But I firmly believe that you're an android. <laughs> so, if you guys want some stickers, uh, we've got those. Just go ahead and at podcast from outer space on instagram just uh dm us and we will send you a our bailing address and just mail us an envelope with um an already paid envelope self-addressed stamp. yeah a self-addressed stamped envelope in it and uh we'll, we'll send you a bunch of stickers and yeah that's how you do that and you know <laughs> be sure to uh Give us a follow if you haven't already. And also, uh, we're going to try something new uh, with an episode in the future. So either DM us on Instagram or email us at um, podcastfromouterspace at gmail. Your craziest dream. And mm. uh, we're going we're gonna to pick a few to read on an upcoming episode. And do your best to guess what that episode is. You know, just like I said earlier... Thank you to all you guys for listening. We hope you have safe travels this week. Uh, enjoy your time with your family, friends, whoever you're spending it with. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Um, be safe out there. Have a good holiday weekend. Mm-hmm.